everybody, I'm Laura Rice, cultural curator, fashion designer, and your guide through the Full Body Frequency experience. What is Full Body Frequency? Glad you asked. Full Body Frequency is the one-hour weekly show that celebrates everything full-bodied and fabulous. We explore the truths and explode the myths about the lives and loves of plus-size women. Since our lives shouldn't depend on how others see us, neither does this show. For those of you joining us for the first time, you're in for a real treat. We're talking fat body politics with critically acclaimed writer Tamara Winfrey Harris. Winfrey Harris is the author of the widely praised book, The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America. We'll talk about her book and Beyonce and feminist formation and her lemonade. Are you sipping? Joining Full Body Frequency a little later is Kat Pazé. She's the creator and host of Friend of Maryland, a weekly fat-friendly podcast with interviews and news from around the fatosphere. Pazé is a senior lecturer in human development and a fat studies researcher at Massey University in New Zealand. Kat and I talk fat acceptance and Friend of Maryland's exciting fifth anniversary. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Full Body Frequency after this she got she got hot got happy got hot got thrilled got hot got degreed got hot got silly got hot got possessive got hot got disappointed got hot got hurt got hot got nurtured got hot got bitter got hot got drunk got hot got drugged got hot got rastered got hot Got pregnant, got hot, got rejected, got hot, got indifferent, got hot, got lost, got hot, got born again, got hot again, got political again, got hot again, got academically ambitious again, got hot again, she got hot, 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 hot again. Full Body Frequency is back, and if you've just tuned in, we're talking feminism and fat body politics. My first guest is the one and only Tamara Winfrey Harris. She is a critically acclaimed writer who specializes in the ever-evolving space where current events, politics, and pop culture intersect with race and gender. Her first book, The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative for Black Women in America, which boldly answers the question, What's Wrong with Black Women? With a resounding, not a damn thing. Tamara, welcome to Full Body Frequency. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Some might say that this is such a wonderful time to be a Black woman in the U.S. Between hashtag Black Girl Magic, Shonda Rhimes, creator and executive producer of Grey's Anatomy, Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder, Gabourey Sidibe and all of her full body frequency. And then, of course, there's Harriet Tubman, abolitionist, Union Army spy, nurse, scout, and the liberator of hundreds of enslaved Africans. And eventually, in about 14 years, she'll be on the face of the U.S.'s $20 bill. And of course, we can't leave out Beyonce in formation and serving lemonade. So what was the impetus for the sisters are, all right, changing the broken narrative for Black women in America? And how does it figure into the conversation of self-empowerment, self-critique, and self-celebration for Black women? So I think Black women have always been happy being us. Um, it is wonderful to be us. Black women are a million different kinds of awesome, and we can achieve a lot of things. 
But folks don't always treat us right because of sexism and racism. And, you know, the idea, the impetus for a book started maybe three or four years ago. Your listeners might remember there was all this conversation about black women and marriage. We are half as likely um, as our white counterparts to get married for a lot of reasons. But the reason that was most discussed, usually by men, also by the media, is that there was something wrong with us, that we were doing something wrong to make us not marriageable and to make us not desirable. The initial idea for a book was about Black women in marriage. However, as I started exploring that issue, I realized which should have been clear all along, that the very same racism and sexism, the stereotypes that kind of underpin the way people talk about us as partners, really affect us across a lot of different spaces. So it affects how people see us in the workplace. It affects how people view our health, our fatness. Mm -hmm. It affects how people see us as mothers. So the book became much broader, but it, it actually started about this, you know, around the conversation of black women in relationships. Your book covers everything from the stereotypes, again, applied to black women, beginning with Mammy going to the angry Sapphire and then to the lascivious Jezebel. Like, as you mentioned, you delve into and unpack black marriage, mm-hmm. motherhood, health, sexuality and beauty. It's just so wonderfully. And now, even as we celebrate ourselves, there's been a dissection of and a backlash against virtually every move we make that shifts the paradigm of falling in line with so-called traditional American values. Mm. So, what the heck? Let's just jump on in. Beyonce <laughs> information and lemonade. And of course, you've written about Beyonce extensively. So let's step back to 2013 to your article in Bitch Magazine where you write, a tiny top and a traditional marriage should not be enough to strip a woman otherwise committed to gender equality of the feminist mantle. If we all had pundits assessing our actions against a feminist litmus test, I reckon that not even Gloria Steinem and Bell Hooks would pass muster. Mm. Women must be allowed their humanity and complexity. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Beyonce just dropped Lemonade, so her Mm -hmm. new visual album. And I've heard, you know, watching discussion on social media, once again, we're discussing whether or not Beyonce is a feminist, despite all that feminist imagery Um, on the visual album, despite all of the ways that she kind of embraced and bigged up black women, you know, from the Malcolm X quote to using a black woman's poetry. I saw someone ask, well, is it feminist to stay with a cheating husband? Mm. As if, as if feminists, whether they're in the public eye or out of the public eye, their lives are not complicated. Like it, as if we don't many times, every, you know, everyone who calls themselves a feminist does not do feminist stuff all day long. Part of right. that is because we exist in a society that is not feminist. We all have to make different sacrifices and choices, and it's not our fault that we have to make them. And so it frustrates me, you know, when we judge black women in the public eye this way, because as I said in the article, I mean, God forbid either of us should be judged that way. With Beyonce's formation and Lemonade videos, have we really entered fourth wave feminism meets the black liberation movement? Hmm. 
I like that idea. Let's say yes. You know, I think we are seeing one thing that's great about everybody listens to Beyonce. Everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Black women and everybody else, too. And I think perhaps what we're seeing because of her popularity is an amplification of Black feminism. Because Black feminism has always been a mixture of those things. You know, Black feminism has always been feminism, but obviously we, there's, there's intersection because we have to pay attention to race and things that are happening in our, com- in, in our communities. So maybe instead of fourth wave feminism meeting, you know, kind of Black power, it's, you know, this is Black feminism. And because of Beyonce, it's now, um, you know, being seen in the mainstream. And recognized. And that's a beautiful thing. You're listening to Full Body Frequency. I'm Laura Rice. And today I'm speaking with writer and social commentator Tamara Winfrey Harris. Bust Magazine calls her work a brilliant deconstruction of the social expectations and the struggles of Black femininity. My friend, they don't care if you're an individualist, a leftist, or rightist, or shithead, or a snake. They will try to explain you absorb you, confine you, disconnect you, isolate you, or kill you. And you will disappear into your own rage, into your own insanity, into your own poverty, into a word, a phrase, a slogan, a cartoon, and then ashes. The ruling class will tell you that there is no ruling class as they organize their liberal supporters in the white supremacist lynch mob. Organize their children into Ku Klux Klan gangs. Organize their police into killer cops. Organize their propaganda into a device to ossify us with angel dust. Preoccupy us with Western symbols and African hairstyles. Inoculate us with hate. Institutionalize us with ignorance. Hypnotize us with a monotonous sound Designed to make us evade reality And stomp our lives away And we are programmed to self-destruct To fragment To get carried under covert intelligence operations Of unintelligent committees in both for death And there it is, there it is The enemies polishing their penises Between oil wells at the Pentagon The bulldozers into demolition dances, the old folks dying of starvation, the informers wearing our shoes looking for crumbs, the lifeblood of the earth almost dead in the greedy mouth of imperialism. And my friend, my friend, they don't care if you're an individualist, a leftist, a rightist, a shithead, or a snake. They will spray you with a virus of legionnaires' disease. Fill your nostrils with the swine flu of their arrogance. Stuff your body into a tampon of toxic shock syndrome. Try to pump all the resources of the world into their own veins and fly off into the wild blue yonder to pollute another planet. And if we don't fight, if we don't resist, if we don't organize and unify and get the power to control our own lives, then we will wear the exaggerated look of captivity, the stylized look of submission, the bizarre look of suicide, the dehumanized look of fear, and 
and the decomposed look of repression forever and ever and ever and there it is there it is If you've just tuned in to Full Body Frequency, I'm speaking with critical thinker and critically acclaimed writer, Tamara Winfrey Harris, whose book, The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative for Black Women in America, has been called a myth-busting portrait of Black women in America by the Washington Post and a techno-prisoner's manifesto by Essence Magazine. So in the chapter, Sex, Bump and Grind, you write, strange that one of the very things that allegedly makes black women unattractive, their bodies and the way they differ from those of white women, is also the thing that marks them as voracious sex sirens. You continue by sharing the life of the so-called hot and tot Venus. Mm -hmm. And from the illustrations I've seen, she was a plus-size woman mm -hmm. whose ample behind was certainly appreciated in her native South Africa. However, she was sold to Europe, becoming little more than a spectacle, being examined by scientists and exhibited to crowds of curious onlookers. So talk a little bit about that and your interview with Heather Carper, who is a cultural critic, plus-size activist, and burlesque dancer. For those of you who don't know, as you said, the hot and tot Venus, her name was actually Sarki Bartman. She had what to European crowds appeared to be an overly large buttocks. And they also claimed that her sex organs were different, her labia were elongated. And she kind of became an avatar for the idea that our very bodies are evidence of us being hypersexual bestial, you know, kind of this animal sexuality as opposed to controlled white sexuality. And that idea has followed us over centuries. As a matter of fact, I was just talking to, I was working on an article for Cosmopolitan magazine about black women and sexuality that appeared in their March issue. And I was asking women about the kind of things, black women, the kinds of things that they learned as girls about their bodies and sexuality. And almost to a woman, people talked about how 
as they, you know, entered pubescence and their hips started to spread. And some women talked about, you know, how they were big women and their, you know, their breasts started to develop. This idea that grandmothers and mothers rushed to put them in girdles and constraints and big tops and just your body is too much. Your body is going to be too tempting. So it wasn't, let me protect you as a young girl from people who might prey on you. It was about controlling your body and hiding this body and hiding the jiggle and hiding the curves um, so that you don't tempt anyone. And I think we are seeing that idea um, still. I mean, look at recent comments by um, Erica Badu about the need right. for girls to wear long skirts. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side, you know, we have this idea that black women, well, statistically, we are fatter than some other groups. But with that, the idea that we are then unattractive. What I found is a lot of stereotypes about black women completely contradict each other. We're sexless mammies, but we're also hypersexual sirens. You know, they don't make sense, but but that's what they are. Yeah, and they kind of live and breathe in the same space, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty ironically. And this is something that's really ironic, too, is that we seem to be left out of the many conversations and leadership roles of the current fat acceptance and body positivity Mm -hmm. movement. You know, sure, there's Gabby Gregg of Gabby Fresh. There's the Instagram famous yoga instructor, Jessamine Stanley. And then there's Myrna Valero of Fat Girl Running, the long distance runner. And while we appreciate the important roles their visual images play in reimagining fat body ability and beauty, Black women seem to be the tail wagging the dog when it comes to body positivity. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned our grandmothers and our mothers, but there actually is a long history of fat appreciation in our cultures and communities. So why does it seem that the fight against fat body discrimination in the workplace and body shaming in the public sphere, why have those become white women's issues and a white woman's movement? Well, yes, I think it is true. And I kind of think it's for two reasons. I think on the one hand, there is this idea that black women don't need to fight for fat acceptance because it is okay to be fat and a black woman. Um, because, you know, the very stereotype of Mammy relies on her being fat and because she is fat being asexual. So there's and there's this belief that in the black community, it's it's not just that we accept women who are fat. It's that you can look like whatever and mm. black men love it and everybody will embrace it. I think any of us who grew up fat know that that's not necessarily the case. You know, the black community may appreciate larger women, may appreciate curvier women, but to say that there are not beauty standards in the black community is not true. And there is certainly a kind of fatness that is more accepted in the black community. It's the hourglass, you know? So I think that's one thing. I think there's this assumption that black women don't need to fight for acceptance for their fat bodies because where we live and in our communities, there's just already accepted and that's how we are and how we've always been. But I think there's also something tied to the beauty paradigm where because white women are expected to be the pinnacle of beauty and the pinnacle of beauty in this country is thin, that it's a big thing to see 
white women who fall outside of that paradigm and are still saying, I'm beautiful, I'm fashionable. You know, people are attracted to that. Again, black women have always existed outside of that beauty paradigm. So again, it's not seen as powerful or as bold when we stand in our fatness and say that we're beautiful. You also write, for black women, the most radical thing we can do is throw off the shackles forged by stereotypes and regain our full and complex humanity. This is a revolutionary act in the face of a society eager to mold us into hard, unbreakable things. How does one take agency, insist on agency, in order to regain full humanity? I think it's a few things. And one is learning to accept yourself the way you are. And that alone is a huge battle because there are so many spaces where we fight that battle, right? So mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the hair thing, <laughs> you, know? There, you know? There's the beauty arena. It's learning to accept your hair as it is, whether it's nappy or straight or whatever. Learning to accept your body, your, your big butt or your no butt in my case learning to accept that and and be okay, you know, and being okay outside of what society says that you should look like. It's learning to accept your own version of motherhood, whatever that looks like, whether you are a single mother or a married mother. It's all of those things. But then it's also learning to support other black women, the ways that we judge them. Beyonce is a good example. I was just talking to someone yesterday of not just the way society um, is hypercritical of black women, but also the ways that we can be hypercritical of each other. Because I very often hear black women really picking apart Beyonce and the choices that she makes and how she looks and how blonde her hair is. So Mm -hmm. I think another part of that is learning to deconstruct the ways that we talk about each other as well as ourselves. So I think those are two things. And I would say treating ourselves and sisters with care is part of that as well. This is Laura Rice, and if you've just tuned in, my guest this segment is Tamara Winfrey Harris, a writer whose social commentary has been called a bomb in this political age of hashtag say her name by Feminist Wire. Speaking of feminism, Bus Magazine's editor-in-chief, Debbie Stoller, writes in the current issue, Feminists on feminist crime is everywhere you look. Older icons misguidedly chalking up young women's political choices to mere boy craziness. To well-deserve, critty language landmines that are triggered Anytime transgender issues are discussed, right when feminism was reaching a cultural tipping point and it looked like we could finally get some shit around here, it's threatening to topple under its own weight. Now, is that true? Is there such a thing as too much intersectionality? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And you know what? I sometimes think that... Again, women's movements get undue criticism for internal strife, because if we are honest, all movements, all equal rights movements have internal strife. Read a book about the civil rights movement, about the, the, you know, the LGBTQ movement. But there's this idea, I notice when we start talking about feminism, that, oh my God, we're eating, our, we're devouring ourselves because we dare to be critical of the movement and we're not supporting women. And I think sometimes 
criticism of feminism as a whole gets bound up in the web where a lot of feminism takes place these days and where, you know, people are very often awful just for general purpose and it has nothing to do with feminism. (laughs) The trolls exist everywhere. Exactly. (laughs) So for those of you wanting to get your intersectionality on, there's a great article on its foundational tenets and current state in the Washington Post. It will be available on the Full Body Frequency Facebook page. How did you get to All Right? Oh. I don't know. (laughs) I think part of it is honestly age. And I think a lot of women would say that. I am 46. To think about that. I'm so old. I can't remember how old I am. And I think like a lot of women with age comes confidence in who I am. Um, and you know, I think Gloria Steinem said, you get radical. One of, one of the right things she said, you get radical with age. But one of the things I'm working on now, I'm actually working on my second book um, with a co-author named Deshaun Perry Smitherman, and it's called Black Girl Power, um, Radically Raising Tomorrow's All Right Sisters. And because I really want to look at how we can gift black girls with all rightness today, because nearly everyone that I interviewed and spoke with, you know, we all said we came to all rightness eventually, like we had to work through it. And then in our 30s, we started to feel better about ourselves. And we had an epiphany at 40 and, you know, all of these things. But it would be great. I would love for black girls to feel okay, And I would love if we could teach them to rise above all those stereotypes that burden them so that they can be okay right now instead of at 50. But even if you're just getting all right at 50, that's okay. But I would love for the younger generation to have something different. Yeah, it'd be great to miss some of those bumps in the road for Mm -hmm. sure. Tamara Winfrey Harris's book, The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative for Black Women in America is available online and in bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Wonderful. Well, we'll have to have you back soon. To keep up with Tamara Winfrey Harris, visit her website, TamaraWinfreyHarris.com, like her Tamara Winfrey Harris Facebook page, and follow her on Twitter at What Tammy Said. Don't Move a Muscle, Full Body Frequency returns with Kat Pause, host of the weekly fat-friendly podcast, Friend of Marilyn. Stay tuned. So, who's going to do what? Flashlights? Nowhere to be found. Emergency supply kits? Not packed. What about blankets? We have an old towel. Cell phones? May not work. Emergency water? Not a drop. Perfect. We all know where we're meeting if we're separated. The library. Jones House. The bus stop. And I'll be waiting here wondering where you all are. Great. It sounds like we don't have a plan. Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov slash kids for tips and information. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Dad, this is fun. I didn't think I liked kayaking. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But I think it's time to head back in. Okay. Can we come back? Sure. Hey, be careful getting out of the boat. It's a kayak, Dad. (laughs) I'm going to return the kayak. Can we walk home? How about a taxi? It's a short fare from your neighborhood to your naturehood. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a neighborhood park or green space near you. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Forest Service. 
Welcome back to Full Body Frequency. Joining me now is my microphone sister, a leading fat study scholar and voice in the anti-fat shaming movement, Kat Pazé. Kat, welcome to Full Body Frequency and happy friend of Maryland fifth anniversary. <laughs> Thank you so much, both for the congrats and also for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you. Absolutely. Like we said, offline, it's been a long time coming. Indeed. So for those who don't know, what is Fat Studies and why? So Fat Studies is an academic discipline that has a lot of similarities with other disciplines such as women's studies, queer studies, black studies, in the sense that it takes a critical look at fatness and fat people and fat identity and specifically often looks at how fat people and fatness are perceived, treated, and understood by the larger society around them. So how long has Fat Studies been in existence? Well, to be fair, Laura, um, I think people have been doing scholarship that would fall under the umbrella of Fat Studies for decades. Mm. Um, the first real kind of Fat Studies texts started coming out um, around in the 2000s, the Fat Studies Journal came on board, I believe in 2011. So in, in fairness, it, it is a newer discipline. Um, but I know that, you know, there are pieces that I use in my own work that go back to the, the 60s and 70s. Mm, okay. So your podcast and blog, Friend of Maryland, which focuses on fat activism, has been around for five years. For listeners that don't know, what is the history of the Friend of Maryland movement and what's your podcast connection to it? So fat activism, like fat study scholarship, ha has probably been around a lot longer than we've necessarily been using those terms I got involved and uh, started actively blogging and engaging on other social media forums like Tumblr and Facebook and Twitter about, um, well, a little bit more than five years ago. But five years ago, a radio station producer here in New Zealand approached me about doing a show about the work I was doing. And I remember I was quite... Um, insistent with him that he wouldn't want my show, um, <laughs> you know, told him that this wouldn't be a show about like weight loss or apology uh, and that it very possibly could anger quite a lot of people. But he was adamant that it was a show that was bringing uh, issues around a marginalized group to the air that wasn't that we didn't have anything like that in New Zealand or really anywhere across the world so much that he could find Mm -hmm. So Friend of Maryland, the radio show started five years ago, and it's a weekly show where I talk about all things fat. And each week I have a guest on who's another, usually another fat person talking about either their work or a topic or something that's been in the news. And in a way, like it kind of amazes me that it's been on the air for five years, um, you know, because time has that way of kind of flying by. But when I think about all of the amazing people I've gotten to meet through doing the show and in watching how fat activism, especially through the ways we connect in, on the internet, has been growing and the fact that issues around fat acceptance and body autonomy are now becoming 
I wouldn't say that they're becoming mainstream, although a lot of them have been co-opted, unfortunately, um, yeah. by corporations. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, it it is something that is becoming more talked about. You actually hear mainstream media using phrases like fat shaming and fat acceptance. And, and that's incredible to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have to say, I am... I so enjoy your show. I so <laughs> revel you. in listening to your show. And, and every time I listen, I just walk away with feeling so much better about the world we live in, in particular, the space I occupy as a fat woman. So thank mm-hmm. you for that. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. So over the past five years, as you just mentioned, there's been a wave of body positivity, both commercially and artistically. How much of that drives conversation on your show? Or is there a mixture of scholarship, uh, a mixture of scholarship and and these conversations? Um, Yeah, well, I have to admit, we don't I don't do a lot of um, talk or even work around body positivity per se. And in fact, I actually am not really a fan. Um, uh, yeah, to be honest. Um, and, and that's because my experience with, uh, the, with body positivity is that bodies as fat as mine aren't included in the party. Um, you know, body positivity seems to very much be a, a celebration of largely kind of smaller fats, um, or, you know, even bodies that don't necessarily look like the bodies we see all the time, but, when you get to a certain weight, then it's like, oh, we're not interested. Or if you're the wrong color, then, oh, well, you're not really included. Or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, other kinds of the intersections that a lot of us experience in our own lives. Um, so while I don't really talk a lot about body positivity on my show, I'll talk about fat positivity. Uh, but you're right in the sense of it, it is a good mix in terms of the things I talk about and the guests I have on the show of scholars, artists, designers, people involved in different forms of activism around fatness. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Full Body Frequency. My guest is Kat Pazé, the lead editor of Queering Fat Embodiment, a senior lecturer in human development and a fat studies researcher at Massey University in New Zealand. And she also hosts the Friend of Maryland podcast, which is available on iTunes. What, if any, changes have you seen via your work with the Friend of Maryland podcast and or that as a researcher in either momentum supporting or backlash against or a bit of both in the anti-fat shaming movement? I think it has been both. So I think that we're seeing more and more people talking about issues around fat shaming and fat hatred and, and body autonomy And I think that then kind of ratchets up the people who really feel like it's the worst thing ever, Mm -hmm. um, that people don't hate themselves. And so they then, you know, kind of want to, you know, push back against that. And of course, the Internet giveth and the Internet taketh away in, Mm -hmm. in those ways. I think in terms of the responses that I get to my own work, it's interesting because when I first began Friend of Maryland, most of the people who were reaching out to say anything to me about the show were other what I would call kind of rad fatties. So other fat people who were involved in fat activism and the fat civil rights movement. And over the years, it's definitely shifted from just hearing from other people involved in the work to hearing from people who, I mean, I remember once receiving an email from a gentleman who thanked me for my show and said that his wife, who, you know, he didn't find as, as fat, but, you know, wasn't necessarily slim either um 
now believed him when he told her she was beautiful. And after listening to my show and and being exposed to other things like my show. Um, And so I thought that was really interesting that these messages around body autonomy and fat positivity are breaching, not just making the world, not just a better place for other fat people, but for, you know, other individuals and probably especially women who have struggled with issues of body image, because we know that anti-fat attitudes, which our culture is rife with, are harmful for people of all sizes. Absolutely. That's powerful. So Friend of Maryland is currently on an international tour. Are there differences in the way fat acceptance and anti-fat shaming movements live and breathe around the world? And what are some of those differences? Well, we're still early into the tour, (laughs) so I can't necessarily speak kind of for around the world. What I can say is that it's incredible to me how similar the lived embodiment of fatness is across the people that I'm talking to. So I most recently finished up doing interviews with um, people in Indonesia and Malaysia and China and Japan and what they were talking about, the experiences that they had, the way that people treat them, the way that people look at them in public are, I mean, almost seem to be universal in the sense that they're exactly the same kinds of things um, that other guests that I've had on the show that have been primarily from Western cultures like the U.S. and Australia and New Zealand and the U.K. and whatnot, have experienced as well. Um, And in a way, it shouldn't surprise me because I actually know the literature around anti-fat attitudes and that anti-fat attitudes are, in fact, found across the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But it has really struck me that the experiences that these fat people are talking about and the work that they're trying to do and the ways that they're trying to push back seem to be so universal. Sadly so. Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's the whole mooing out of the car window thing. Like, uh, is that something that's essential or innate in our DNA? Like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that said, it seems that the fat acceptance movement, including health at every size, and we all love Linda Bacon, has really pushed the fat agenda. Is there any danger that there will be a declining need for fat studies in the near future? I don't think so. I think that something that I often hear from people who haven't really given it a lot of thought is this silly idea that, you know, fat prejudice is the last socially acceptable form of prejudice, which is just ridiculous, really, because in the cultures that I engage in, sexism and racism and classism are all still very much alive. I think that we're a long way away from no longer needing serious civil engagement and activism around ensuring that fat people have the same rights and dignity as non-fat people. Um, But I think that even if we do achieve, you know, some kind of world where people do embrace that all bodies are good bodies, I think that fat study scholarship would still have a meaningful role to play in the kinds of research questions and the kinds of epistemologies and methodologies that are engaged by fat study scholars, because obesity research is seemingly to be never ending and is very well funded and produces, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, produces most of what a lot of people think and believe about fatness and fat bodies. So I do think that fat study scholarship is, is, is here to stay. I don't think there'll ever be a time when 
there aren't scholars who are interested in asking those kinds of critical questions. And I'd love to see it grow. I mean, it's still relatively new. Uh, you can't get a degree in fat studies anywhere in the world. So I'm looking forward to over the next few decades of my own academic career, watching how new fat study scholars emerge, how the field continues to grow, and also seeing the potential for all of the intersections between fat study scholarships and, and other forms of scholarship that study marginalized and oppressed groups. Well, you said something a few minutes ago that was very interesting about how well-funded obesity studies are. Mm-hmm. And when we come back from this quick break, Kat and I will talk about that. We'll talk about the directional differences in the fat acceptance movement and her top 10 rad fatty things of the last five years. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio, take one. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. The smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency. And 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now, before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. My name is Dale Pazinski, and this is how I live United. I volunteer with United Way, helping the homeless in my community by teaching computer skills and helping them build a basic resume to save on their very own USB drive. It's huge when somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. This is Laura Rice, and I'm back with my guest, Kat Pazé, whose crazy cool and insightful podcast, Friend of Maryland, is celebrating its fifth year anniversary. Be sure to check it out and subscribe via iTunes. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about obesity studies. Who's funding them? Oh, everybody. Obesity research is funded in the by the government. It's funded by the food industry. It's funded by big pharma. It's uh, I'm sure the Cook brothers have their hands somewhere. Like <laughs> it's funded by everybody. <laughs> now I've actually even heard that the initial BMI studies were commissioned by Weight Watchers. Um. Oh, you know, I, I'm actually not sure about that. I know that when. MetLife had a big, so MetLife Insurance mm-hmm. was a, a big player in the early part of the 20th century in the United States in shifting our understanding of what the BMI was and how we used it. But it wouldn't surprise me um, if, you know, someone heavily invested in the weight cycling complex was funding that kind of research. And I think part of it, and this is something that I've trying to be talking about more and more here in New Zealand where I am is that obesity has become kind of the catch-all boogie person. If there's research that people want to do in order to get funded, oftentimes that they kind of throw in, you know, obesity, especially childhood obesity, then 
it kind of becomes a way, you know, for them to be able to, to get the money because it's this quote unquote big problem that we have to solve. We had a group of researchers here at Otago a few years ago publish a food list that they identified as being like non-essential energy dense. And the press release from the university itself was about fat people. Of course, they used obese people. Fat people need to be taught about these foods. And all the subsequent press about that was about that. And I, at the time, kind of challenged that and said, look, if a group of nutrition academics have come together and said, this is a list of food that people really should try to cut from their diets. Yeah, well, why is that only valuable information for fat people? I was on a morning show a few years ago, and towards the end, the very flustered host kind of came back at me at the very end with, you know, well, what about all the fat kids drinking too much fizzy drink? Like, surely you're not trying to say that that's okay. Because in my experience, the but who will think of the children is the card right before they play the Hitler card in any mm-hmm. given, you know, losing argument. And what I responded to her was that one that was a very different conversation than what she and I had been having. If we wanted to have a conversation around children drinking fizzy drinks or, you know, soda drinks, then again, why is that only a problem for fat children? Like, why don't we want to talk about the health of all children, regardless of the size? And I think that that's part of what always gets lost when we have an obesity epidemic lens, whether that's from the scientist point of view, from the media point of view, from the government point of view, Something like Michelle Obama's Let's Move program could be a great program, but it loses all of its greatness and then contributes to eating disorders later in life for those kids because it's through the lens of an obesity epidemic. And, oh, you know, we have to make sure fat kids are moving. Without regard to everyone should move. Yeah. Or, you know, let's encourage all children to engage in forms of movement that they find pleasurable. Just like the feminist movement, there appears to be a generational or perhaps a directional split amongst fat activists in our community. NAFA, for example, the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, which was founded in 1969 as a nonprofit civil rights organization dedicated to ending discrimination in all of its forms and to help build a society which people of every size are accepted with dignity and equality in all aspects of life. Then there are young heads like the militant baker who work in both traditional spaces, writing books and producing conferences, and also in non-traditional spaces, a la social media, with her hashtag Empower All Bodies campaign, a response to Lane Bryant's I Am No Angel lingerie campaign. So am I reading into this incorrectly Is it that NAFA is fighting for acceptance and better physical accommodations, equity and hiring and employment practices, while younger activists are interested in being seen, being the manifestation of physicality, health, fashion and beauty? Or is that true? Am I incorrect about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess to be honest, Laura, from my perspective, it's not really... I don't necessarily know if it's something of a generational, you know, kind of difference. And I don't necessarily know if I care. I think for me, you know, the fat activism tent should, I would hope that it's big enough for people who are only interested in advancing fat rights through kind of legal means and ensuring that it's illegal to discriminate against fat people, Mm -hmm. which is not currently the law in most of the world, can, you know, be under the tent alongside someone who 
whose priority is around issues of fatness and intersectionality and Mm -hmm. ensuring that, you know, the voices of poor fat people and fat people of color and queer fat people and and that kind of thing are also heard and that their issues are also raised. So I hope that the fat activism tent is, is kind of large enough for all of the different groups and people along the way and around the world as well who are interested in making the world a better place for fat people in whatever way they think should take priority. I do think that in the fat activists, maybe more than people who are promoting fat acceptance, because I do think there is a difference. I think that oftentimes in fat activists and fat activism, you'll see more of a recognition of issues around intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And you'll see more of a commitment to say, if it's not for and about all of us, then it's really not about any of us. I think your show, Friend of Maryland, is doing such a great job of bridging any and all of the gaps. Well, th- <laughs> goodness, I appreciate that. I hope that my show is useful for the people who listen. I hope that I'm doing a, a good job of checking the privileges that I have in my own fatness in life. Um, when I'm engaging on my show. And I mean, part of the reason I wanted to do the world tour is because over five years and over 150 episodes at the point where I had kind of thought about this, I realized that probably a good 80% of my guests, if not more, were coming from the United States, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand. So other, you know, English speaking, Western individuals. And I thought, you know what, I can do better than that. (laughs) Because again, it can't just be about, you know, what fatness is like for people in in Western cultures. So that's why I thought I would do the tour. I thought, well, this is a good way to challenge myself to expand out my networks to reach out and say, what is your fatness like for you where you are in the world? And also, hopefully a chance to promote and highlight voices that might not necessarily be promoted or highlighted to the kinds of audiences that that do tune in. Oh, that's great. So Kat, now before you go, let's talk about a piece you put together for your show and blog in honor of your anniversary. It's called the top 10 rad fatty things of the last five years. So let's go through them very quickly. Sure. Okay, number one, Add Positivity Project 2016 calendar. Why is that number one? The Out of Positivity Project, which is helmed by Substantia Jones, is a photo activism project that celebrates fat bodies. And without a doubt, it's been one of the most powerful influences on how I look and think about my own body, about how I think about fat bodies. And I just, I love her work. My house is full of it. Um, and the calendar that she started putting out a few years ago It's just fantastic because it's a great gift. Like I usually buy, you know, 10 or more each year to give away to people that I care about. And it's a great way to support the work that she does. So from my perspective, every home, every office, every space in the world should have one of these hanging up in it. (laughs) Absolutely. And the cover of the calendar is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, well, and and honestly, all of her pictures that she takes are. So I would encourage you, if you've never looked at her work, just give it a Google, the Out of Positivity Project. I'm especially excited because I'm hosting a Fat Studies conference later this year in New Zealand, and Substantia is going to be one of my keynotes. 
So I'm excited that she'll be coming out to New Zealand to talk about her work with the conference and hopefully to shoot, uh, to photograph some naked fat Kiwis while she's here. Excellent. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. So we've got the Chubby Legs Brooch by Fancy Lady Industries. (laughs) Talk about those. Oh my God. Okay. So Fancy Lady Industries is a product of Natalie Perkins, who's an artist in Australia. And a lot of people probably would recognize her fat necklace. So her laser cut fat necklace that is kind of everywhere. And I have it in every color, but like last, I think it was last year, she put out this chubby legs brooch and I'm actually not a brooch wearer. In fact, this is the only brooch that I own, Mm. but I love it. And I've got the, I've got the, there's there's two of them and one of them has stretch marks. And so that's the one that I own. And what I I love it. I'm looking at it now. Yeah. And what I do is every time I go to a conference and you have one of those, you know, name tags with the lanyards, I take that brooch and I attach it to my lanyard. (laughs) And so I walk around, whether it's an academic conference or a union conference, whatever, I walk around this conference with, you know, a pair of fat legs with stretch marks very proudly displayed on my chest. (laughs) So let's jump to number seven, fat ladies in space. A Fat Positive Coloring Book by Nicole Lorenz. And now coloring books are all the rage now. So tell us about this one. Yeah, so this is actually, and I have to admit, like, this isn't in the last five years, a few of these. So apologies. This coloring book is, is fantastic because coloring books, even before they kind of came back into vogue, have always been a really great way to kind of express creativity And this coloring book is, as the title implies, it's all fat ladies in space. Um, So I'm a a huge fan of of the book. And quite often when I go out and do community outreach and talk with community groups, I'll not only take the book, but I'll have made copies of it so I can pass out sheets to people that they can take home and color themselves or take home to their kids. Because it's just so important for fat bodies to be represented in all aspects of our lives as part of the celebration and appreciation that bodies come in all shapes and sizes. Now, number 10, the Yay Scale from Marilyn Wan. I think alongside the Out of Positivity Project calendar, the Yay Scale is something that everyone needs in their house, especially someone who's interested in fat activism. Because this is a scale put together by Marilyn Wan, who's a fat activist in San Francisco and who has been doing fat activism for decades. And the scale doesn't have any numbers on it. It only has words. And I know that for a lot of people, especially a lot of women who've been dieting their entire lives, it feels really wrong to not have a scale in their bathroom. So I encourage people that if they have to have a scale in their house, make it EA scale because it will change the relationship that you have with your body. It will change your relationship that you have with scales if you already have one. I often take yay scales out with me when I do activist activities and it's incredible to watch people's faces because there's first fear. As soon as they see the scale on the ground, they're afraid because they're like, I don't want to be weighed in public. Keep that thing away from me. (laughs) I remember doing an episode of 2020 a few years ago and women would be coming down the street towards me in my scale and they'd see it on the ground and they'd cross the street rather than have to even walk past it because they thought it was a normal scale. So what's great about the yay scale is people stand on it. And instead of giving it them a number that they might in the past have used to assess their self-worth 
determine what kind of day they were going to have or how they were going to feel about themselves. Instead, the scale says something like attractive or cute or handsome. And it's a whole new experience and a whole new way to experience standing on a scale for most people. Well, Kat Pase, thank you so much for joining me today. For more information on Kat and her work as a fat positivity activist, please visit friendofmaryland.com. We'll be right back with this week's Plus One. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Full Body Frequency. This week's Plus One is truly special. I have five copies of Feminist Theory from Margin to Center by feminist thinker and scholar Bell Hooks. So here's the deal. We'll give away five copies, the first five listeners who like Full Body Frequency's Facebook page. Then use the hashtag FBFRocks in the comment section and we'll send you the book. It's that easy. Again, all you have to do to claim your copy of Bell Hook's critically acclaimed South End Press published Feminist Theory from Margin to Center is number one, like the Full Body Frequency Facebook page, and two, hashtag FBF rocks, as in Full Body Frequency rocks in the comment section. Word to the wise, don't include any personal information in the comment section. We'll inbox the five winners directly. Good luck and keep on listening. Until next time, tune into your own Full Body Frequency, where large is luscious living.